From the Heart.org Radio, this is The Fellow's Corner. Welcome and thank you for tuning in to The Fellow's Corner. I am Rob Cosiel, a cardiology fellow at Duke University Medical Center in Durham, North Carolina. We are fortunate to be joined today by Dr. Adrian Hernandez, Assistant Professor of Medicine, Division of Cardiology at Duke University Medical Center. Dr. Hernandez also has a faculty appointment at the Duke Clinical Research Institute. Dr. Hernandez is a true thought leader in improving the care quality and outcomes among heart failure patients. He is involved with the American Heart Association's Get With the Guidelines Heart Failure Quality Improvement Initiative, serving as the co-principal investigator of the Statistical Coordinating Center here at the DCRI and the ACC Hospital to Home Quality Improvement Quality of Care Initiative. He has extensive original research publications related to heart failure outcomes, quality of care, and clinical effectiveness. Dr. Hernandez and colleagues at Duke were recently awarded an HRQ Decide grant to perform comparative effectiveness research related to heart failure. The topic of our discussion today is improving outcomes among patients hospitalized for acute heart failure. As we all know, heart failure is a highly prevalent and growing problem in the U.S. Heart failure is the most common discharge diagnosis among patients aged 65 years and older and costs the U.S. healthcare system over $38 billion annually. As many as a quarter of those discharged after a heart failure admission will be readmitted to the hospital within 30 days. In fact, Medicare is publicly reporting hospital-level 30-day mortality and readmission rates for heart failure patients as a quality metric, which is focusing increased attention on these outcomes. Dr. Hernandez, much of your research is centered around post-discharge outcomes of patients hospitalized for heart failure. How are we doing here? Have we improved our post-discharge outcomes in the past decade? <laughs> it is the multi-million dollar question. Over the last 10 years, we've seen a continued problem with readmission rates and consistent variation in practice in terms of how do we approach patients to prevent readmissions. Because of the cost of healthcare, this has recently come to the forefront of focus for everyone in the U.S. practicing medicine. Sure. As you mentioned, 30-day readmission rates have become an area of intense focus. What's the reasoning behind this? So there's multiple factors at play. I think one is that people have realized that in the U.S. we have a fairly fragmented healthcare system. And what I mean by that is that there's intense focus in terms of the inpatient care, and there's been remarkable improvement in terms of quality of care for the inpatient side as well as at discharge. And then there's multiple avenues outside of the hospital where patients can fall through the cracks. And so this transitional period where there may be inconsistent coordination of care, inconsistent follow-up, inconsistent use of evidence-based therapies is really an area that can be improved upon. Finally, there's also issues related to cost. So, for instance, there are estimates out there that approximately 90% of readmissions are potentially preventable. And if we were able to prevent some of these readmissions through better outpatient care, we would actually have some improvements in terms of the cost of healthcare for the U.S. You recently published a study in the Journal of the American Medical Association which looked at the association between patients who follow up early with a physician after discharge and their post-discharge outcomes, which gets at the point you're making with respect to transitions of care. Can you briefly describe the study and your findings? Yes. What we were interested in is to see two things. One is 
simply when patients are discharged, who do they follow up with? How soon do they follow up with those practitioners? And then two, whether it mattered in terms of either the time period of follow-up or uh, the type of provider. And what we found was that follow-up varied across Get What the Guidelines hospitals, that patients may or may not see their primary care physician or even a cardiologist after a heart failure admission within 30 days, that if we looked at the early follow-up period, that is within seven days, most patients did not see a physician during that time period, which is often considered a vulnerable period in terms of transition of care. Hospitals that had more consistent follow-up patients during that early period within seven days had lower readmission rates. The other thing that we showed is that the types of physicians that patients see during the inpatient to outpatient setting varies. It's more common than not that patients will see different physicians on the inpatient setting versus the outpatient setting, and this highlights the need to coordinate care between those two areas. And then finally, that within 30 days, most of the follow-up is done by primary care physicians, so either general internists, family practitioners, and also highlights the need to make sure the information and care during the inpatient setting is translated to those physicians as an outpatient setting. These findings are certainly interesting and, as you mentioned, highlight the need for us to improve these transitions of care from the hospital to the home setting. So we found this association between early follow-up, as you mentioned, which I believe was defined as follow-up within seven days of discharge, and decreased readmission rates. What's the next step here in translating these findings into improved outcomes for patients? Right. So there's been, you know, other studies that have highlighted the need to have coordinated care. And so one of the things that we're very interested in doing is actually trying to, one, understand what types of patients don't receive that early follow-up or coordination of care. And then two is also to validate the findings through uh, prospective studies. So one can imagine doing prospective trials where different types of follow-up are used and compared. So understanding whether in-person early follow-up is the key ingredient, whether other types of follow-up can be done during the early period that could impact uh, readmission rates, and seeing if we can actually improve outcomes for hospitals here in the U.S. In your discussion piece, you mentioned that this transitional time is a vulnerable period for heart failure patients. What other aspects of the transitions of care are important other than physician follow-up, and what are areas under active investigation to improve these transitions? Right. So I think that it's important to realize that early follow-up is not the silver bullet. This is going to take a multi-pronged approach in terms of improving readmission rates. So other things that may have an impact is establishing a safety net for patients during the post-discharge period. So for example, patients may not have access or have an easy ability to transport themselves to a clinic. And so reaching out to their home to try to understand how they're doing, either through telephone monitoring or other remote monitoring may be useful. The other thing is that if patients miss a follow-up appointment, instead of just letting it go, that there's actually a trigger or safety net that highlights that this patient missed a follow-up and so indicates a warning perhaps that this patient may be high risk for readmission since they weren't able to follow up. Certainly, you know, having improved 
access to medical care or therapies or drugs may also be helpful in terms of improving readmission rates. So there are times, unfortunately, where patients are simply not able to get their medications. And so they're not able to take their diuretics, then obviously they're at risk for being readmitted. So having that kind of access to care and therapies is, is important. And then finally, I think we have to realize that this is a multidisciplinary approach. So having teams of people that from nurses to pharmacists, both within the hospital or in the practice setting or even in the community, work together to take care of these patients, especially those who are high risk. One method that has been used in the past to implement this multidisciplinary approach to managing outpatients that you've mentioned is the so-called disease management program. These are fairly heterogeneous in the way in which they monitor patients and who provides the care. In general, are they effective? It seems like the results have been mixed. I think it has been mixed results there. In part, there is some limitation in terms of scalability for some programs. And while having in-person contact is actually pretty effective and that may be one of the most effective means, that can be difficult to scale up to every patient. So there has to be a way to try to identify those patients who are the highest risk for readmission and to target those patients. The other thing that's also a challenge is that right now there's not a a direct reimbursement for disease management. Uh, So it still has to work within what we have now in terms of a payment system. And so there may be some hospitals that are not, have very strong incentives to develop and support such uh, disease management programs. And so you can imagine perhaps smaller hospitals, if they have multiple practices that are not necessarily united, that they may not have economies of scale to develop a disease management program or support it, whereas hospitals that are larger that may have some more flexibility in terms of structuring disease management program have the ability and perhaps a stronger incentive to do that. So we still need to line up incentives to help have those kind of disease management programs be effective. And so there needs to be something changed in terms of the payment policies, either direct reimbursement for such efforts or even rewarding hospitals that have improvement in their readmission rates over time. So your second point for sure is well taken in the sense that hopefully with the healthcare reform and some of these new pilot programs, there may be incentives which promote establishing disease management programs and rewarding hospitals for keeping patients out of the hospital. To get back to your first point, there's somewhat of a need to select patients who are at high risk and may benefit most from the disease management programs. How good are we at predicting patients at high risk for adverse outcomes? Well, we're not very good there. So most models in terms of identifying those patients who are readmitted perform relatively poorly, so with the index of 0.6 or so. And so that just shows that either what we have in terms of the routine information that are entered in these types of databases not enough in terms of the clinical characteristics of patients who are readmitted, or there's something else in terms of the system of care that's unaccounted for in terms of understanding who gets readmitted. So we definitely need to improve on those readmission models in order to have effective care to prevent readmission, and that's actually going to require 
a new data or a new understanding of why patients are being readmitted and how those events can be prevented. And do you think understanding factors related to those transitions of care that you mentioned before may be able to improve our ability to discriminate among those patients that are high risk for adverse outcomes? Yeah. So I think, you know, one of the things that challenges is that most data comes from the information that's known at admission. So there's a lot of things that change during the hospital stay that may be informative. Then at discharge, there may be important factors in terms of their social or economic or psychological setting that may impact readmission rates. And, you know, little information is known about uh, those areas. And then especially in terms of the transitional zone, you know, what social fabric that they live in that may support or don't support their care, understanding what those factors are and how those can be leveraged in terms of preventing readmission or at least identifying those patients who are the highest risk who don't have, say, the social support or access to care may be a good target here. Certainly makes sense. Dr. Hernandez, this is exciting work that you're doing, and I think that it's going to make a huge difference given the burden of heart failure on our society and the suffering it causes. I wanted to take a step back in our last few minutes that we have and just ask you a little bit about your own career path. You've developed an extraordinarily successful research career in a very short period of time, and as we've discussed, have made important contributions to improving the care of heart failure patients. Can you describe how you became interested in heart failure outcomes and quality of care? It really starts back in terms of medical school and and then also residency. You know, who are the people that you're around and who are good role models? And I was fortunate to have good role models both at UT Southwestern and at UCSF. So Clyde Yancey at Southwestern, when we were students, you know, is very much the role model for many of us in terms of being the great physician that cares about patients also is striving to improve uh, outcomes. Uh, similarly, I had good role models at UCSF. And this extends on into Duke, but before I came to Duke, I was fairly certain that I wanted to do care and heart failure and outcomes research. Lee Goldman at UCSF was a great example of doing outcomes research in academia. And so Heart failure was a natural niche in terms of combining both, so both on the clinical interest as well as the major need. You've mentioned a number of names, some of whom are well-known. It sounds like mentorship played an important role in developing of your early career. Yeah, for most everyone, it's pretty hard to succeed without good mentors. At Duke, I was fortunate to have a truly five-star team in terms of mentors with Chris O'Connor, Eric Peterson, and Rob Caleb, and so really covers the spectrum in terms of type of clinical research as well as different areas within cardiology. And the good things about them is that they gave me huge opportunities. They provide responsibilities in terms of developing ideas and having independence to come up with new concepts or new studies. But then they're also there in terms of being able to quickly point out the mistakes and point out the flaws so you have a continuous cycle of learning. What suggestions would you make to a cardiology fellow interested in heart failure research, particularly clinical outcomes research? The main thing is really look in your own kind of clinical experience and try to come up with a, perhaps a list of questions that you see every day clinically that you can't find the answer. You see that there's a big problem and be able to kind of continuously keep a list of those things that you can tackle over time. 
The second thing is never be afraid to reach out to people to help you in your efforts. That fortunately in Heartfire, we have lots of people in the fields around the nation who are very invested and interested in growing young investigators' careers. And for many people, this is a huge opportunity because there's such a huge need for people who are interested in heart failure, a huge need in terms of improving outcomes, and a huge need in terms of uh, doing outcomes research. And so that is, in a way, a perfect storm where fellows can easily fit in. And if perhaps they don't have someone in their own institution that fits those areas, there's ton of people out there that are more than willing to help out and mentor from afar or co-mentor in some examples. Great. Well, Dr. Hernandez, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to The Fellows Corner on the Heart.org radio.